Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Hello, and thank you very much indeed for inviting me to speak at this lecture series, uh, the, all, the Association of King's College Life of the Mind series. I'm really excited to be speaking here and among uh, amidst a lineup of scholars who I really love and respect. Uh, and also, I'm very grateful to Dr. Claire Carlyle for organising this very timely series of talks. I'm going to be speaking today about mindfulness. And you've probably all come across mindfulness in one form or another. In 2014, Time magazine, for its new New Year issue, claimed that tw- that year, 2014, was going to be the year of mindfulness. And they called it the Mindful Revolution. Mindfulness, as it was presented by Time magazine, was a kind of technique of the mind which could help deal with stress, burnout, the kind of frazzling nature of our multitasking culture uh, by enabling us to calm inwardly, to bring attention inwards and settle the mind. And they base their conception of mindfulness, and I think this is probably one of the most popular conceptions of mindfulness, on the definition put forward by the founding father of the mindfulness movement, John Kabat-Zinn, who we'll hear a lot more about shortly. And John Kabat-Zinn said that mindfulness was a kind of awareness, a special kind of awareness or mental state that arises when you pay attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally. So when you pay attention in the present moment, not uh, on purpose, non-judgmentally. And you primarily do this through a kind of sitting meditation. So you sit down, you follow the sensations of breathing, the sensations of sitting, you inwardly notice how the breath feels, also any emotions and thoughts that emerge. And the claim for this practice, this is the simple story, we'll hear a more complex story shortly, the claim for this practice is it relieves stress and helps us enjoy our lives more. Mindfulness has become hugely popular, again as you may have noticed, Many, many people use apps like Headspace every day to help themselves relax and settle and be more productive and focused in their lives. Mindfulness has also been rolled out in prisons and schools and hospitals and businesses across the, across the country, actually across the world, to help make people more happy, more productive um, and increase resilience. There has, of course been a backlash to this. Many people, uh, particularly critics from the political left, have argued that mindfulness is a racket, as this article in the New Republic on the slide on the left suggests. It's a racket because, like the classic uh, opium of the people, which is religion, according to to Marxism, uh, mindfulness numbs us to the problems of our society 
by getting us to focus inwardly, focus on ourselves, we're taking attention away from the larger structural social inequalities that are really causing rifts and tears in the fabric of our society today. Mindfulness is a distraction, enslaving us to the machine of neoliberal capitalism. Criticisms also come from Buddhists. You might have heard that mindfulness comes from or is influenced by the Buddhist tradition. Mindfulness uh, critic Ron Purser suggests that muck mindfulness has come to dominate our world. Muck mindfulness is a kind of bastardised or uh, thinned out version of the Buddhist tradition presented as something which can offer us practical benefits but really is a cheap, sugary meal of meaningless pseudo-spirituality. So criticisms primarily coming from the Buddhist tradition and also the liberal left arguing that mindfulness is a racket. And certainly we might be drawn to agree with them in some ways. It does seem like big business has made a lot of mindfulness uh, and one has to ask oneself, well, who benefits from this? Presumably businesses feel like they're going to benefit. Also, as you might have seen, certainly uh, someone pointed this out to me, I didn't notice, but mindfulness has played a role among people trying to manage the COVID pandemic. This initiative put forward by uh, Michigan State Governor Whitmer uh, uh, in association with the Headspace app offers free resources to people wanting to practice mindfulness to help them remain calm and centered and resilient during the outbreak. And they have a slogan, stay home, stay mindful, with a pun on Michigan, with the MI of mindful. And we might well think that this is exactly what the critics suggest it is. You have the isolated individual represented here by the lighthouse smiling away while surrounded by a kind of sea of darkness, you know, that they don't have to worry about because they're lit by an inner lamp out from the lamp or the, the, yeah, the, the lamp of the lighthouse is radiating this beautiful, calm, yellow light. Of course, seen in the context of the technology that provides this service, uh, that light goes two ways. The individual is also surveilled by headspace and possibly even by uh, the governor's office, sending data out from their phone as to how often they're meditating and um, perhaps giving a sense of whether the population is currently under control. And perhaps this takes on particularly gloomy tones if we recall that, well, actually, I don't think I told you, but if you, if you, if you know that uh, this campaign was put out on the eve of the Black Lives Matter protests following the death of uh, George Floyd. Of course, the proponents of the mindfulness movement don't see it this way. They think that this light isn't a kind of opiated, uh, calming, befuddling light, but it's the light of something very, very positive, bright, beautiful. John Kabat-Zinn, who I mentioned earlier, is, is often thought of as the founder of the mindfulness movement as we know it, says that, and this is a quote, basically, when we're talking about mindfulness, we're talking about awareness, pure awareness. It is an in innate human capacity that is different from thinking, but wholly complementary to it. 
It is also bigger than thinking, because any thought, no matter how momentous or profound, illuminating or destructive, can be held in awareness. So mindfulness is pure, it's beyond thinking, and he's saying this in the context of a world riven with ideological and political polarisation. He's saying that mindfulness is bigger than any of that. In other places he says that it transcends the divide between science and religion, precisely because it's bigger than any thought about any particular thing. So mindfulness is more, according to Kabat-Zinn, than just a tool to make us feel less stressed. It's saying something, uh, or it contains within itself, something profound about the human mind, the human self, and offers somehow a reconciliation between conflicting forces within ourselves and within the world. This is certainly the perspective which a number of the major proponents of mindfulness bring, and it's a, proponent, it's a perspective that seems to be offering something of the wisdom of the Buddhist tradition. Most people who are associated very strongly with the mindfulness movement in the public imagination also have strong associations with Buddhism. So this is Andy Puddicombe, the founder of Headspace, who uh, I showed in the previous sliders, partnering with Michigan, offering the Stay Home, Stay Mindful campaign. So he started out as a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner. We see him here in his monastic garb on the left, and went on to become uh, a corporate mindfulness magnate. And here he is on the right on a late night American TV program talking about the benefits of mindfulness, um, I think about 10 years later. So Padakam, certainly, uh, at least in private, if not in public, has, is reported as having very clearly claimed that Headspace is aiming to offer the heart of the Buddhist tr tradition, the essence of Buddhist wisdom, to the masses. And this will have a hugely beneficial effect in his view. So this brings us to the question of uh, my lecture, the kind of the, the subtitle of my lecture anyway, is this mindfulness movement religious or secular? So far, uh, in some ways, it sounds clearly like a secular phenomenon. It's uh, being propounded as something which can be used in schools and hospitals and prisons and other very obviously secular, non-religious environments to help people feel less stressed. On the other hand, its uh, central proponents seem to be saying that it's bigger than thinking, it transcends the boundary between science and religion, and yet it comes from the Buddhist tradition. The latter fact, the fact of the very strong associations between the leaders of the mindfulness movement and religious Buddhism, has led most scholars studying mindfulness as a social and historical phenomenon to think that mindfulness, the mindfulness movement indeed is a religion, if we have to call it anything. This is because it has beliefs, the belief that we're all inherently mindful, the belief that mindfulness is bigger than thought, it has rituals, the ritual of sitting down and meditating, following the breath. It has a community, a very strong community, uh, certainly in my own experience of researching the mindfulness movement. And also it has a clear inside and outside. If you, you, you certainly notice, uh, I certainly notice in talking to people who are very involved in mindfulness, 
they didn't take one seriously unless one oneself practiced mindfulness, so one knew it from the inside. So these scholars say, these uh, religious studies and socio sociology scholars say, it looks like a religion to us. Most practitioners, however, say that in their view, it definitely isn't a religion. They tell a story like this. The reason it isn't religion, and this is a, a quote from Kabat-Zinn I'll read, is because we are never appealing to authority or tradition, only to the richness of the present moment held gently in awareness, and to the profound and authentic authority of each person's own experience. So we are never appealing to authority or tradition, only to the richness of the present moment. The reason that the proponents of mindfulness who I spoke to thought that what they were doing had nothing to do with religion was because to them religion was all about external authority. It was about people in robes telling you what to do, telling you that you're sinful and instructing you in how to be an acceptable human being. Mindfulness is doing something very different, it's channeling something which we all already contain within ourselves the present moment held gently in awareness, which is a source, they claim, of wholeness, of integration, even of freedom. So, I'm not going to, maybe predictably, uh, tell you whether I think it's a religion or not. At least, not yet. I might say something a bit about it at the end. But what I do want to do is tell the story of this story, tell the story of this story that we just heard about mindfulness from Kabat-Zinn, this idea that mindfulness, although it's related to Buddhism, somehow essentially has nothing to do with it because it's a kind of pure aspect of the mind which we all already have access to. It's all about one's inner experience and has nothing to do with any authority or tradition, Buddhism or otherwise. I'm going to try and tell the history of that story about what mindfulness is. I'm going to try and describe where that story came from how it emerged, and why it became so compelling for the people who were dedicated to practicing mindfulness, the first generation of those people, in 1970s America. This is a history where we see very deep fusions between religion, psychology, psychedelic drug experimentation and science, particularly in the 1960s and 1970s in Britain and America. And I want to suggest in this lecture that while the light that's being radiated here from the lighthouse of mindfulness looks very pure, within that light is carried a very complex history. It's a history laden with the promise of the countercultural revolution, the optimism of the hippie era, which also contained the promise of the human spirit coming into the world and making the place better. So I'm going to try and tell the history of that by looking back at 1960s and 1970s America. And I'm going to look at what it was like for people like Andy Puddicombe and on the right, John Kabat-Zinn, the founder of the mindfulness movement as we know it. What it was like for them as they moved through 1960s, 1970s, or actually in the case of Puddicombe, uh, 80s and 90s spiritual scenes attempting to recover what they thought as a universal, essential lesson for humanity out of ancient religious traditions. So I'll just give a, a brief roadmap. In the first part of the lecture, I will 
give a brief introduction to John Kabat-Zinn and his founding of the Stress Reduction and Relaxation Clinic, which took place in Massachusetts in 1979. I'll then take a look backwards in the second part at the context from which Kabat-Zinn emerged, which was the countercultural scene of 1970s Massachusetts. And then in the third part, I'll turn towards examining how Kabat-Zinn sought to gather up what he'd learnt from the countercultural scene and bring it to a large new population through his stress reduction and relaxation clinic, which he founded in a hospital in Massachusetts in 1979, and from which he based uh, what was to become the mindfulness movement. So Kabat-Zinn founded... Uh, the Stress Reduction and Relaxation Programme in a newly, relatively newly initiated hospital, a state-funded hospital, uh, the University of Massachusetts Medical Centre, in 1979. Kabat-Zinn was trained as a molecular biologist and had uh, finished his PhD at, at MIT in the early 1970s. At the same time, he'd also had quite a deep and long-lived relationship with Buddhism and yoga, practicing regular yoga classes in Harvard Square, and also becoming quite involved as an organiser in the Buddhist scene in Massachusetts in the 1970s. He was the chair of the Cambridge Zen Centre, and he was also a regular practitioner at the Insight Meditation Society, uh, which we'll hear about more later. All of these places were clustered quite close together, within an hour's drive of Worcester, Massachusetts, the quite large town where the University of Massachusetts Medical Center, where Kabat-Zinn's Stress Reduction and Relaxation Program was based. In 1979, towards the end of 1979, John Kabat-Zinn submitted a proposal to the administrators of the hospital where he was working as a postdoctoral researcher. His proposal was, as you might be too small for you to see, but I'll read it out on the right, you can see it says, an experimental pilot project using stress reduction and relaxation techniques with ambulatory patients in the primary care, orthopaedic and pain control units. So, what were these experimental uh, stress reduction and relaxation techniques he proposed? They were, of course, mindfulness meditation that he'd learned while practicing, particularly with the Insight Meditation Society, who were uh, offering Buddhist practices, secularized forms of Buddhist practices, in nearby in the nearby town or really village of Barry. And Kabat-Zinn gives us a hint about what he's going to offer amidst a proposal that's very physiological, certainly aimed at medical specialists rather than meditators. So Kabat-Zinn says in a biography, a short biography that appends the proposal, he says, the originator of this proposal has 11 years of experience experimenting with yoga techniques in his own life and has been teaching yoga and meditation in a wide range of circumstances in the last eight years. He has studied with a number of yogis and meditation teachers and is engaged in a, in a continuing effort to extract the essentials of yoga and meditation from the deep cultural and religious forms in which they arose and in which they came to this country so that they might be more accessible and beneficial to Americans. 
So his project is to extract the essentials of yoga and meditation from their deep cultural and religious forms so they might be more accessible and beneficial to Americans. That sounds very simple. He's learned about yoga and meditation through going to Buddhist centers and yoga classes. He's finding out what their essentials are and he's turning them into a medical intervention. That sounds very straightforward. As I'm going to suggest and talk about at length later, I don't think it is so straightforward. But let's hold with that story for now and look at what, uh, what that story is generally understood to mean by people who I met when I was doing my field research into mindfulness uh, between 2013 and 2016. What this story would have meant to them. And it meant quite simply that people like Kabat-Zinn turned towards the Buddhist tradition, learned some practices like mindfulness meditation, and had taken those practices and given them to others. This is a picture of the founders of the Insight Meditation Society. Um, we have Jack Cornfield uh, on the, the second from the left, Joseph Goldstein in the middle, and Sharon Salzberg on the left, who are very well known within the global uh, contemporary Western Buddhist scene. As pioneers of Buddhism in the West, they had gone to Burma and to India, trained with teachers such as um, the Burmese meditation master Mahasi Saidor, who's um, sitting behind in the middle. And they'd come back to teach mindfulness meditation to Westerners. Now, they'd been taught meditation by these Burmese masters who had themselves already uh, attempted what they thought as was purifying the Buddhist teachings down to their essentials, which, which they claimed was mindfulness meditation, and making it, thereby making it more accessible to lay populations. And these Burmese teachers, like Mahasi Sayadaw, particularly emphasised the possibility of using meditation in daily life as a means to improving physical and mental health, as well as spiritual health. So, the founders of the Insight Meditation Society, who and they, they uh, Salzburg, Cornfield, and uh, Goldstein, came back to America. Were able to get hold of a large building in the small town of Barry and set up a meditation center. And this is a picture of the meditation center. That's Goldstein uh, pointing, uh, along with the Burmese monks. Kabat Zinn was very good friends with Goldstein and Salzburg and Cornfield in the 1970s and attended their very early retreats. And it was on one of these retreats that he had the idea for teaching mindfulness to much larger populations. So I'm going to read a quote from a biographical account he gave in 2011, that's Kabat-Zinn gave in 2011, uh, about how he came up with the idea for mindfulness. He says that, on a two, and I'm quoting, on a two-week retreat at the IMS, the Insight Meditation Society, in Barrie, Massachusetts, in the spring of 1979, I had a vision that lasted maybe 10 seconds. It was rich in detail and more like an instantaneous seeing of vivid, almost inevitable connections and implications. I saw in a flash not only a model that could be put in place, but also the long-term implications of what might happen if the basic idea was sound and could be implemented in one test environment, namely that it would spark new fields of scientific and clinical investigation. 
and would spread to hospitals and mental centres and clinics across the country. Pretty much everything I saw in that 10 seconds has come to pass. That's pretty dramatic. In 10 seconds, Kabat-Zinn had a vision. Or within 10 seconds, Kabat-Zinn had a vision for the whole movement that would emerge from bringing the practices he'd been learning on that retreat to a hospital setting. He attempted and was extremely successful in his attempt to translate the practices he'd been learning into a kind of medical, psychological uh, uh, discourse. In an article that he published in, 19, in 1981, shortly after he'd founded the clinic at the Massachusetts Medical Center, uh, he described exactly what he was teaching to patients, and, and this is a group of patients sitting doing mindfulness meditation probably in the early 80s. I couldn't quite date the photograph, but I think in the early 80s. And um, Kabat-Zinn says, the practice of mindfulness meditation presupposes concentration to maintain steady attention. Rather than restricting attention to one object, this approach emphasizes the detached observation from one moment to the next of a constantly changing field of objects. This flexibility is achieved by concentrating on one primary object until attention is relatively stable, then allowing the field of objects of attention to expand, ultimately to include all physical and mental events, body sensations, thoughts, memories, perceptions, intuitions, fantasies, exactly as they occur in time. Expansion of the field of attention is, gra is taught gradually. So he sets out here, that was quite dense and complicated, but the, the, the spirit of it is all the practices is you sit down and you pay attention to whatever's happening in the mind and you learn to concentrate on this steadily. And that will have a stress-reductive effect. And in the conclusion of the article, he says, we conclude that this form of meditation can be used as the basis for an effective behavioural programme of self-regulation, that self-regulation of, of emotion and stress, and pain in chronic pain patients. This sounds like he's very successfully done what he set out to do, to translate what he'd learnt in the meditation centre with uh, these American Buddhism teachers or, or Buddhist meditation teachers uh, and give it to patients in a way that reduces stress. Now, I want to try to complicate this story a little bit. I think there was more going on than this story of straightforward recontextualization suggests. And I think that what's most telling uh, in this story, what's most telling in favour of there being more going on, is that nearly everyone who was involved in mindfulness in this early wave in the 1970s, along with John Kabat-Zinn, were also not only very involved with Buddhist practice, but they were also involved in all kinds of other things, in psychedelics, in yoga, in biofeedback, which was a kind of uh, melding with machines such that the machine could tell you your internal state, alternative medicine, and all, even neo-Hindu Hindu or other religious and spiritual movements, uh, Sufism, experimental theatre and dance. I found it very useful in my research into mindfulness to look at Kabat-Zinn's wider social circle. One of his 
old-time colleagues and teachers, Ferris Urbanowski, told me that we're all old hippies. And I think that there's something very important within the hippie scene of 1970s Massachusetts that tells us why mindfulness, not only why mindfulness was so important, but how the story of mindfulness as taking something essential from Buddhism or from even from religion more broadly, something essential which then which also transcended any particular cultural form and giving that to people as a cure for a huge variety of personal and social ills, how that story took hold. I'm going to begin with this character, Ram Das, sometimes known as Baba Ram Das. Ram Das started out as a psychologist working at, working at Harvard. Um, we see him here in the 50s looking very uh, respectable. He was friends with another Harvard, Harvard psychologist called uh, Richard Leary, uh, sorry, Timothy Leary, Richard Alfred, Timothy Leary. Uh, Timothy Leary, who was famous, maybe even notorious for his popularization of LSD in America. So Alpert and Leary and a few others experimented with psychedelics in the 50s and 60s, um, gradually becoming more and more wild in their experimentation and until finally they were dismissed for giving psychedelic drugs to students. Uh, Ram, Richard Alpert, he's still Richard Alpert at this point, um, dropped out, went and travelled to India in search of spiritual enlightenment and was renamed Ram Das by his guru. He then returned to Massachusetts as a spiritual leader, publishing a very famous book called Be Here Now, a book which is thought by some historians to be the initiating force of the New Age movement in America. In Be Here Now, Ram Dass described his own journey from psychedelics to spiritual enlightenment, his own journey dropping out of mainstream society, and he becomes a teacher to very many people. And this is Ram Dass teaching a huge gathering of students in Massachusetts. Oh no, I think this is actually in Colorado. Ram Dass became uh, very, very central to a whole generation of young people who saw a dramatic personal transformation through psychedelics, through meditation. Uh, Kabat-Zinn, the founder of the mindfulness movement, was a personal friend of Ram Dass. They studied together in Buddhist studies groups. They went on retreat together. Ram Dass was also involved in the Insight Meditation Society. Um, and Ram Dass would spend his time talking to people, helping young people who sought a very different relationship with their own minds and with society. He says here uh, in this um, image from Be Here Now, I've been with literally well over a hundred people who've had such an experience which was powerful and va valid, but it was so discontinuous with their normal consciousness that they screamed for help. One of the people that Ram Dass helped was a future colleague of Kabat-Zinn's, in fact the first secretary of Kabat-Zinn's stress reduction clinic. This was a young man called uh, Brian Tucker. Brian Tucker had um, gone to college in New York and had taken psychedelics in his final year of university, had a wild mind-opening experience where he suddenly realised what, what he'd been doing wrong in his life. 
he decided to go to India and study with spiritual teachers after meeting Ramdas. In fact, uh, he phoned Ramdas up one day somehow, managing to get his number after reading Ramdas's book, Be Here Now. And Ramdas invited him to his house uh, and gave him various bits of advice. And anyway, eventually, uh, Brian Tucker went off to India. And this is a picture of Brian Tucker having his head shaved um, in order for him to be ordained as a monk, uh, sorry, not in India, in Burma. So, travelling in Burma, uh, Brian Tucker is initiated as a monk and has dramatic, uh, mind-blowing meditative experiences. He says, and this is an interview I, I had with him back in 2015, he said, I was sitting with no effort whatsoever. Every thought or image that came up I was completely aware of, noting it all without names. The feeling is one of skiing down a slope with no anxiety, total relaxation, no problem. It was the great, exalted experience of my life, in which the teachings of the Buddha were revealed as plainly true. Tucker was called back from Burma prematurely uh, at the death of his father, and he started immediately to try and find ways to bring what he'd learned through yoga and meditation, particularly through meditation, into uh, his life in the West. It was, that was how he came into contact with John Kabat-Zinn. There's also another story. Actually, I, I think we're going to be a bit short of time to hear one. But there were many other stories like this in which Kabat-Zinn's colleagues came into contact with LSD, with meditation, and with a wild array of alternative lifestyles. They came into contact with this, they decided to drop what they were doing because their minds had been blown, and they decided to dedicate their lives to helping others by enabling them to realise new altered states of consciousness. So it might seem as though this is a very natural story. This might be, I mean, I think it probably is very familiar to all of us. This sense that the 60s and 70s in America were pretty wild. There were drugs, there was meditation, there were hippies. But what exactly was it that drew these currents together? Now, there were a lot of things, and I don't have time to talk about all of them, but I'm going to pick out one aspect that I think is particularly salient for understanding the mindfulness movement. And that's the emphasis on altered states of consciousness. Ram Das quotes from the great experimental psychologist William James in uh, Be Here Now. So Ram Das's 1971 book, Be Here Now, which was so important to so many people in America who sought an alternative way of approaching their lives, uh, a new way of conceiving spirituality, a new way of conceiving psychology. Um, so in Ram Dass's Be Here Now, Ram Dass quotes William James as saying, Our normal waking consciousness, rational consciousness as we call it, is but one special type of consciousness. Whilst all about it, parted from it by the filmiest of screens, there lie potential forms of consciousness entirely different. We may go through life without suspecting their existence, but apply the requisite stimulus, and at a touch, there they all are in their completeness. Definite types of mentality which probably somewhere have their field of application and adaption. No account of the universe in its totality can be final, 
which leaves these other forms of consciousness quite disregarded. How to regard them is the question, for they are so discontinuous with ordinary consciousness. I'll stop there, I think that's enough. Um, so James is saying here, and James was writing in his book, I think this is from, yeah, from the Varieties of Religious Experience, which was um, published around the turn of the 20th century. In, in James's book, he's arguing that there's a huge range of states of consciousness which we're not usually aware of, which are just, uh, just apart from our normal consciousness, and which are the seat of religious experience. This is what the religious mystics, people who think, who believe they've met God, are talking about, believe they've achieved enlightenment. This is what they're talking about, these realms of consciousness which are part of the human mind, but which we don't usually have access to. And James believes that psychology ought to make space for them. And the way James's psychology makes space for them is through the concept of experience, of religious experience. He claims that we don't have to view these wild states as being somehow external to us. Uh, if you're visited by spirits, if you uh, have an experience of something like telekinesis, if you, um, or sorry, telepathy, or if you uh, f feel yourself to be somehow enlightened, those can be understood just as different kinds of experiences which have a reality because like everything, like fantasies, like the imagination, they take place within the mind. Now James's conception of mind was quite expanded and actually he thought that the relationship between the internal and the external world was decidedly blurry. But he argued that science could make sense of religion by looking at it in terms of experience. And this was taken up very wholeheartedly by members of the countercultural movement in Massachusetts in the 1970s. Dan Goldman, uh, towards the end of the 1970s, published the varieties of meditative experience in which he'd gone around talking to meditators, yogis, sages in India, cataloguing their different kinds of meditative experience and using the framework that William James had offered about 70 years earlier. Why was this so important to the countercultural movement? This was important because it offered a binding, a kind of binding metaphysic which allowed a hugely diverse array of practices uh, from LSD experiences to yoga to meditation even including certain kinds of science of the mind like psychology uh, a way of understanding them as all happening on the same plane they were all happening on the plane of unusual intense altered consciousness experience and meditators hoped, particularly at this time, to that they, by experimenting with all of these different modalities, spiritual modalities, by borrowing from the East, by exploring psychedelics, they were somehow getting to a root spirituality or kind of root uh, mental clarity that was the essential, uh, the essential nature of all of these religions distilled into a single approach or a single type of spiritual practice. And the proponents of mindfulness claimed that mindfulness was just that. Mindfulness somehow gathered up and encapsulated all of these routes towards alternative states of consciousness, or at least it captured what was most important about them. 
And this was what bound uh, these very diverse uh, practices and practitioners together, who came together alongside Kabat-Zinn to start the Stress Reduction Clinic in the hospital in Massachusetts in 1979. So, this brings us on to part three. And I'll now, very briefly, because I'm getting towards the end of my time, tell you exactly how the hospital worked, or how the clinic worked. So we heard in the original proposal that Kabat-Zinn had studied with a number of yogis and meditation teachers, and is engaged in a continuing effort, this is a quote, to extract the essentials of yoga and meditation from the deep cultural and religious forms in which they arose, so they might be more beneficial and accessible to Americans. So how exactly did he do that? The first and most important thing, as we've already heard, was to make meditation look medical. A very important discourse, a very important cultural current that had emerged around the time that Kabat-Zinn was working was the idea of stress, this idea that's so uh, central to us now, was having its first uh, emergence in the middle of the 20th century, put forward by health, health writers like Hans Selye. So according to Selye, stress was the, uh, who was a, 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 a popular uh, speaker and uh, medic. Uh, stress was a social ill created by widespread social degeneration, uh, mainly caused by industrialization and its problems. So stress provided a very broad category. We're all stressed. We were all stressed then, and certainly if it's true uh, then, it's even more true now. So because anyone could be stressed, anyone could practice mindfulness, which could help them cure their stress. However, um, what was needed in order to cure stress was, according to Kabat-Zinn, for people to take responsibility for their own health. And those of you who know about the history of economics during this time will notice that um, this came at a moment where the Thatcher, Reagan, neoliberal era was just dawning and the idea of personal responsibility was gaining a lot of political traction. So Kabat-Zinn claims that the only way of reversing the trend towards stress is to help uh, enable people to take responsibility for their own health. And the way they would do this is through each individually practicing mindfulness meditation. So Kabat-Zinn was given patients within the outpatients department of the hospital, patients suffering not, suffering not just from stress, but also from chronic pain, chronic illness, uh, gastrointestinal problems, even later HIV, psoriasis. Illnesses which could very, very broadly be categorized as stress-related. He would uh, take in these patients, teach them to meditate, as we can see in this slide here, um, and then he would... Uh, gather data on them and publish articles. And these are examples of articles all published in the 1980s showing the effects of mindfulness meditation. At the same time as offering this very uh, clearly medicalized approach, they preserved something of the spirit of the countercultural scene within the clinic, in its, in its heart. And this is a quote from Kabat-Zinn uh, explaining how this worked. Kabat-Zinn says, we chose to position our work as part of clinical behavioural medicine and to structure it as a clinic 
in the form of a course designed to train patients in mindfulness and its application, including coping with stress, pain and chronic illness. However, its basic mission was orthogonal from the start in that we saw it as operating within an entirely different paradigm and consciousness from the larger institution within which it was embedded. From the outside, it looks like a clinic, builds like a clinic, operates like a clinic, but once inside, one gradually discovers that it is rotated in consciousness and operates out of very different principles and values from the overall mission of the institution, the hospital. So it's rotated in consciousness, according to Kabat-Zinn. This is a talk he gave to funders in, the, uh, in 1994, funders who were sympathetic to the countercultural aims of Kabat-Zinn. What did this look like in practice? In practice, uh, it wasn't just an idea, it was a social reality. We saw um, in one of the early slides I gave Kabat-Zinn teaching yoga in the corridors. He also taught yoga in much more informal settings. A, a whole social world emerged around the clinic, gathered around the clinic, closely related to the Insight Meditation Society in nearby Barry. And we see here Kabat-Zinn and Santorelli both dressed in a way which is maybe more obviously part of their identities as members of the of Massachusetts counterculture. They went on and led staff retreats, staff meditation retreats, at, uh, mainly taught at the Insight Meditation Society and also at the nearby Barry Centre for Buddhist Studies. These retreats were very much taught from the Buddhist tradition. And here we see, this is a group photo of the staff members, and nearly all of the staff members were very heavily involved in this broader countercultural scene. We already heard from Brian Tucker, who's left by this point. Um, but all of the people, and I spoke to most of these people while I was doing my research, were in some way or other heavily involved with yoga, meditation, alternative medicine and healing. They'd often come to mindfulness through psychedelics. Um, and they were seeking to offer some of the spirit of this uh, very exciting social world that they'd occupied in the 1960s and 70s to a mass audience. So now we have perhaps a bit more of a sense of how those most deeply involved with mindfulness might see this image, this image of the light of mindfulness shining out. The light of mindfulness is something like an essential quality of the human mind, which is the distilled essence of those techniques of self-transformation that we've seen that were so big in Massachusetts in the 1970s, uh, which seemed to offer maybe a flash of illumination, perhaps from psychedelic experience, perhaps a vision on a meditation retreat, maybe a, mo a moment of intimacy with one's spiritual teacher. And... This was very much of and for the individual. And we can see in the, in the lighthouse here, the light is illuminating the lighthouse and making, you know, there's, a, there's the closed eyes of contentment and the smile. And it's also shining out into the world, acting as a lamp for others. It's housed within something very ordinary, something every day. Um, here it's a lighthouse. We just saw it was a hospital. Uh, in 1970s Massachusetts, its externality, its external features are mundane. Yet, 
while its form is mundane, its deeper meaning is something transcendent for the practitioners or the proponents of the mindfulness movement. It represented, for those who were very invested in it, something that went entirely beyond thought, history, science, or even religion. Is this religion? Uh, they thought it went beyond religion, but of course, uh, you might say, well, that's something that religious people would say. The historian of, uh, of religion, the historian of secularism, Charles Taylor, points out that the original meaning of the secular what meant something like that which relates to this life, that which relates to a single human lifetime, and that was what was meant by the seculum. Um, so the secular, strictly speaking, can't be that which transcends all mundane categories, transcends thought itself, because that suggests something much bigger uh, than a single human lifetime. On the other hand, this very strong emphasis on the mundane, this idea that there can be a complete separation from the transcendent, between the transcendent element and its mundane housing, that the mundane can simply be a channel or a conduit for the transcendent. That seems to suggest that very strong transcendent, non-secular, maybe sacred, even religious elements are there alongside uh, an emphasis, a way of talking that is usually associated with the secular. I think that maybe you guessed I was going to get to this. Mindfulness represents a genuine hybrid of secular and religious currents. I also think that where, wherever we uh, land in the debate about the potential benefits or dangers of mindfulness, we should all agree that it's a powerful force. I think its presence in this Michigan campaign for helping to manage populations during the coronavirus suggested this. Uh, sorry, suggests this. Mindfulness, with its promise, in with its powerful, potent promise of individual enlightenment, this promise of channeling deep spiritual truths into the present and offering them as a light to others, is bound up with new emergent forms of political rule. I think that whichever it is, whether it's science or religion, it's certainly a force to be reckoned with. It's part of an emerging form, an emerging pattern in political rule, which combines the promise of the counterculture, the promise of huge transformations in human consciousness, which will then lead to the transformation of the whole of society, with big technology, with corporate power, and with governmental power. And whether we like mindfulness or not, whether we're impressed with it or not, and whether we think it works or not, it's going to be a force to be reckoned with in the years that come. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.